Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this public lecture on Friedrich Engels, the man who made Marxism. Um, I'm the traffic cop keeping order. Uh, my first business must be to say that I shall introduce Dr. Hunt, and then he will speak till sometime between 7 o'clock and 7.30. And after that, he has agreed to uh, take questions and discussion. Like every chairman in these circumstances, I hope the questions and indeed the comments will be decently crisp and concise. Um, I think I might observe that Marx and Engels are a kind of duo of a kind you don't get in the intellectual world very much. You get, get it in the world of comedy because it's, um, it's Morecambe and Wise or Laurel and Hardy or people like that. And where that happens, there's usually one front man and one stooge. And one of the questions that no doubt Dr. Hunt will cast some light on is to what extent that model um, operates in, uh, in the case of Marx and Engels. I mean, there are other pairings like Plato and Aristotle, Hobbes and Locke, Kant and Hegel maybe, but these are almost all the creations of uh, historians of thought. There's also the interesting pairing of Boswell and Johnson, where in one sense Boswell is the stooge because he's simply recording what Dr. Johnson says and what he does and so on. But on the other hand, he can do something that Johnson could not do for himself, namely create him as a personality. So um, with these uh, observations, let me introduce Dr. Tristram Hunt, um, who is a lecturer at Queen Mary College, um, greatly experienced not only in academia, but also in the ways of uh, television, radio, and um, uh, newspapers. So he's a man of accomplishments who already, uh, at a young age, has to his credit one impressive book on Victorian cities. Um, he's now doing a major operation in bringing a certain amount of light to Frederick Engels, who is, in our generation, a rather neglected, unjustly neglected figure. Dr. Hunt. On the 30th of June, 1869, Friedrich Engels, a Manchester mill owner, gave up his job in the family business after nearly 20 years in the post. Waiting for him on the path of his small cottage in the Chalton suburbs was his lover, Lizzie Burns, and house guest, Eleanor Marks, daughter of his old friend, Carl. I was with Engels when he reached the end of his forced labour, and I saw what he must have gone through all those years, Eleanor later wrote of Engels's final day at work. I shall never forget the triumph with which he exclaimed for the last time as he put on his boots in the morning to go to his office. A few hours later, we were standing at the gate waiting for him. We saw him coming over the little field opposite the house where he lived. He was swinging his stick in the air and singing, his face beaming. 
Then we set the table for a celebration and drank champagne and were happy. I want to talk this evening about one of the great but forgotten figures, I think, of the 19th century, whose legacy once extended around the world but is now somewhat forgotten. For where once Engels' name was on the lips of millions, as Marx's fellow combatant, as the co-author of the Communist Manifesto, as the name regularly grafted onto cities, streets and squares by revolutionary insurgents and left-wing councils, as the man whose visionary bearded features stamped onto currency, etched onto textbooks, and alongside Lenin and Marx featured in the Soviet realist billboards on May Day parades. Now, Engels' name is barely registered in East or West. In 1972, an official East German biography could naturally claim that, quotes, nowadays there is hardly a corner of this earth of ours where Engels' name has not been heard of, where the significance of his work is unknown. As late as 1987, a Chinese sociologist could write that the face of Engels, along with that of Marx, is familiar to every Chinese citizen. I think that is hardly the case today. But what I would like to suggest is that he's more relevant than ever. For 20 years on, as the post-1989 polemical dust settles, as we look back on the fall of the Berlin Wall, the socialism of Marx and Engels is no longer automatically locked into the long Leninist shadow of the Soviet Union. And so we should be able to take a renewed look both at Marx and Engels, in a world free, for the most part, of the state socialist experiments of the 20th century. And as such, I think, Engels' writing offers new perspectives for the modern world on the nature of modernity and progress, religion and ideology, colonialism and liberal interventionism, urban theory, feminism, even Darwinism. What is more, I think, he speaks peculiarly to our own times, the financial crisis we're in is something Engels would have been particularly aware of. Managing a mid-Victorian cotton business, dealing daily with the economic chain of world trade which stretched from the plantations of the American South to the Lancashire mills to the British Raj, it was his experience of the workings of global capitalism which made their way into the pages of Marx's Das Kapital, just as it was his experience of factory life, slum living, armed insurrection, street-by-street -street politicking, which informed the development of communist doctrine. And then, of course, as a biographer, there are the wonderfully attractive personal vicissitudes of a life, I think, of extraordinary sacrifice and contradiction. His is a fascinating story of family division, deep friendship, as Professor Minogue said, and ultimate philosophical certainty. So it begins in 1820 um, in the town uh, of Barman. Uh, Barman Elberfeld, modern-day Wuppertal, which is near Dusseldorf uh, in the Rhineland. In those days, uh, it, was, it was Prussia. Here, Engels was born as the eldest son into a strict, conservative, God-fearing family of Friedrich uh, and Elise uh, Engels. Probably no son born in such a family ever struck so entirely a different path from it. Friedrich must have been considered by his family as the ugly duckling, mused Karl Marx's daughter, Eleanor. For Engels' upbringing, 
despite the rather harsh visage of his parents, offered no inkling of his revolutionary future. Uh, there was no dead father, there were no sibling rivalries, uh, there was no trauma at school. In fact, it was an enjoyable, prosperous, a happy childhood, plentiful siblings, indulgent grandparents, all the rest of it. The Engelses were textile magnates, um, whose successful family firm, Caspar Engels and Sonner, um, involved in the bleaching business. Here they are uh, laying out the, uh, the bleaching. Um, along with the production uh, of silk and the spinning uh, of, of cotton. And by the 1830s, uh, in the Wuppertal, there are around 200 factories operating along the valley. And uh, Barm and Elberfeld were at the, the bottom of this uh, valley where the Wupper uh, ran. And so right along the river, you have all the bleaching works, you have the textile works, you have the, uh, the cotton works, you have the chemical plants. It was known in its time as the German Manchester. And so from its earliest days, Engels is brought up amidst the sort of the acrid stench uh, of the industrial world, uh, the pollution, uh, the dying. The river Wupper ran red uh, or crimson sometimes with the colour of the dyes and the effluent uh, which were poured uh, into it. And as an impressionable young boy, Engels soaked it all up. But he also began to feel increasingly uncomfortable at the social divisions he witnessed all around him. The Engelses themselves lived in a beautiful four-storey Baroque house by the river, which the RAF hit with precision in 1942 uh, during a bombing raid. I don't think that was an ideological uh, act. Um, and it was in a, um, almost like a sort of corporate compound, surrounded by other houses uh, of his uncles and his grandparents leading down to the river. And it was known as Engels's Brook uh, at the time, and it was still known as that. Uh, uh, towards the end of the 19th century. But Engels began to take against the social divisions, the divisions between the richness of his own family, the wealth of the bourgeoisie, uh, and the working class he saw around him. In a series of anonymous articles written at the age of 19, Engels denounced the inequalities. He's pointed to the smoky factory buildings and yarn-strewn bleaching yards. He traced the plight of the weavers bent over their looms and the factory workers in low rooms where people breathe in more coal fumes and dust than oxygen. And he went on to denounce the profit-obsessed, pious, philistine, tedious, mercantile world uh, of his parents. But the interesting thing is that Engels did this not yet as a communist, not yet as a materialist. His criticism was really from the young romantic school, and here he is as a young romantic, uh, aged uh, 19. He was drawn to the work of Goethe, which was widely dismissed in the circles around him. He read Schiller, he read Novalis, he read Fichte, and in particular, he was drawn to the political wing, as it were, of the Romantic movement, known as Young Germany, based around the poet Ludwig Born and Heinrich uh, Hein. His earliest politics was a radical, progressive patriotism, much of it bolstered by his reading of Shelley. Engels absolutely adored Shelley, uh, and he translated uh, some of his, his work, as many early radicals did. And what Engels wanted to do as a young man was to get rid, not of uh, the bourgeoisie to court, not deal with the means of production, but he wanted to counter the 
the archaic Prussian monarchy, the, the backward-looking kingdoms uh, which still divided Germany. And instead, what Engels was interested in was constitutionalism, was a German nation-state, was rights for the Jewish people, was a move towards democratic constitutionalism. It was a, it was a nationalist idea of Germany, uh, which Engels was inspired by and always inspired him uh, for the rest of his life. And we tend to think so much of Marxism as this dry sort of the, the, the reduction of enlightenment thought to the end. But at the beginning of Engels' intellectual life, it was romanticism which inspired him. But as you can imagine, his father was absolutely horrified by this. And there's this, there's this wonderful letter where Engels' father goes to Engels' desk and discovers a, a schmutzig, a, a dirty or greasy book, which was a tale of medieval romances from the 13th century. Uh, and clearly his son was going in the wrong direction for a good cotton merchant. So he's sent off to the University of Berlin. Sorry, he's sent off to Berlin to do his military service uh, as, a, as, a, as a good subject of the Prussian monarchy. But there Engels quickly falls in with the crowd around the University uh, of Berlin and he leaves the, the parade ground uh, for, um, for the world, really, of the young Hegelians. And... Berlin University at the time was still under the influence uh, of Hegel. Hegel himself had, had, had died, but his, his, his protégés were still there. Um, and I always like this image because I think you get some sense of Hegel's lecturing style, uh, which is fairly unforgiving. Um, but the, the, the young Hegelians uh, are, are around him, uh, taking, taking it up. By this time, age 20, Engels had he'd lost his faith. He'd lost the the Protestantism uh, of his parents. He'd read David Strauss, and then he'd read Hegel, and he liked to read Hegel over a glass of punch. And then, which I think is a very good read to Hegel, uh, and then he discovers uh, Ludwig Feuerbach. Um, and this is the key intellectual move for Engels. The young Hegelian use of the dialectic of Hegel's dialectic is used in this sense for two things. First of all, to criticize the political consensus of the Prussian state, of the Hohenzollern uh, monarchy, this reactionary, conservative, backward-looking monarchy. Secondly, and more importantly, it is used to critique the alienating effects of Christian worship. The roots of socialism are so bound up with religious criticism, and it really begins in Berlin in the early 1840s. The worship of a Christian God, of an exterior God, the young Hegelians suggested, the submission to creed, to dogma, alienated man from his true essence. The more you worshipped a God, the more debased you were as a human being. And there could be no chance of human self-consciousness, the realization of freedom, the living life as a full human, as long as there was subservience to an exterior God, as long as man was worshipping in this form, you would never have the kind of world of humanity and fellowship the young Hegelians were interested in. But this was a question of philosophy and theology, formulae, nothing but formulae, as Marx and Engels would later call it. The man who moves Engels towards communism is not Karl Marx, 
but the so-called communist rabbi, a man called Moses Hess, a, 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 a wonderfully romantic character. Um, Hess, like Engels, is the son of a manufacturer. His, his father manufactured sugar uh, in the Rhineland. And, and Hess, like Engels, is damned as if he's going to go into his parents' manufacturing business. Uh, and so he flees for Paris. And in Paris, he mixes with the socialism of the Saint-Simons and the communists um, and begins to make this move away from this young Hegelian focus on Christianity and religion and more to materialism, more to the effects, as he saw it, crucially, of capitalism. Because what Hess suggested was that the same process of alienation which was going on in terms of Christian worship was also produced by capitalism and private property and the money economy. And Hess's concern was for political action rather than the circular philosophical debate that had been going on in Berlin. And he argued that to reach the kind of common humanity which the Berlin theologians wanted, it wasn't simply enough to get rid of Christianity. In the modern industrial world, what brought about alienation and dehumanization was private property and the capitalist system. So this is the crucial move. The move from a concern with alienation as this idea of religion to capitalism and private property as the, as the great force of alienation. Now Hess was an optimistic man and he saw capitalism coming to a close and a new socialist future on the horizon. And there was going to be a revolution and it was going to happen quite quickly. And in what he called the, the European triarchy, in what he suggested was the coming revolution, the three great nations of Europe, France, Germany, Britain, each had a role to play. Germany, being Germany, was going to do the philosophy. France, because they liked to be on the streets, was going to do the political activism. And Britain was going to provide the social kindling of revolution. Why? Because it was in Britain that capitalism was most advanced. It was in Britain that the effects, the alienating, dehumanizing effects of capitalism were at their starkest. The class divides were greatest. The poverty was greatest. The riches were greatest. Britain was in the forefront of the industrial revolution. And so therefore all the effects of capitalism were at their most advanced. The modern art of manufacture has reached its perfection in one city, wrote Engels in particular, in Manchester. The effects of modern manufacture upon the working class must necessarily develop here most freely and perfectly, Engels predicted. The result was that the enemies are dividing gradually into two great camps, the bourgeois on the one hand, the workers on the other. And this was poor Engels' father's second great mistake. Having sent him, or encouraged him to go to Berlin to uh, have his military service where he falls in amongst the young Hegelians, Engels' father is horrified by the radical turn his son is taking. So he thinks, well, I know. Where is the most sort of bourgeois, dull, anti-revolutionary, philistine place? Manchester, obviously. Uh, and this is where I'm going to send my son to work in the Ehrman and Engels mill, the partnership of which I own. And there he's going to forget all this sort of radical Hegelian nonsense and train himself up as a cotton merchant, uh, 
and a good Christian and hopefully marry a nice sort of bourgeois girl. And that obviously is not what happened. Before departing for Manchester in 1842, Engels goes in to see Moses Hess. They have their first face-to-face meeting. And there's a wonderful letter from Hess that Engels arrived, he recalled, as a shy, naive first-year revolutionary. By the time he had finished his tutorial, Engels had been converted into what he called an extremely eager communist. And this is the important point, that Engels arrives in Manchester, sees the poverty and the immiseration as a communist. He does not convert to communism, having confronted the inequality and the misery that he's going to see in Manchester. In fact, as we'll see, Manchester's role was rather to confirm his philosophy uh, rather than to establish it. So this was where he worked, um, the Ehrman and Engels Mill, um, which is by the Liverpool to Manchester uh, train track um, for easy access for the, for the cotton imports. This is in Weest, uh, in Salford. Uh, and this is the, the cotton. Um, the company was called Ehrman and Engels. Um, and then Engels, as we'll see, is bought out in 1870, and then it just becomes uh, Ehrman, uh, and then it's bought out again in the 1890s. Uh, and Godfrey Ehrman uh, was one uh, of the partners, uh, and this is his celebrated uh, th- uh, three-diamond uh, uh, thread. Um, and the cast, this is a sort of, the Ehrmans were Dutch, um, and the, the, the stamp they have of the three towers was their sort of brand identity for the cotton. And Engels begins working in the throstle room uh, in the Salford uh, mill. He lives uh, not far uh, from the mill uh, in Salford. But he was adamant that when he got there, and he, got, he gets there in the middle of 1842, in the middle of the plug plot chartist riots, as Manchester seems on the verge of revolution, uh, the most exciting time you could possibly be there. But Engels says, I forsook the company and the dinner parties, the port wine and champagne of the middle classes, and devoted my leisure hours almost exclusively to the intercourse with plain working men. Engels makes friends with the Chartists. He visits the Owenite Halls of Science. He walks the neighbourhoods of Manchester with his, his Bradford friend George Wyeth and his Irish lover Mary Burns. And Engels discovers a world which is there to confirm in so many ways his communism. For amidst the warehouses, the mills, the stock exchange, the slums, the public houses, in Manchester Engels makes a series of intellectual and ideological breakthroughs instrumental to the development of Marxism. In Engels, in Manchester, Engels harvested the facts, 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 as Dickens called it, of industrial England to devastating effect. And what he moves here crucially, he jettisons the idealism, uh, the philosophy in so many ways, the formulae, nothing but formulae of the Berlin days, for the hard materialism of what he sees all about him in Manchester, what he discovers in the throstle room, what he sees in the slums off Oxford Road, uh, what he sees in the great wealth uh, in Cheatham Hill. And Manchester is there to consolidate his thinking. And the result, of course, is the 1845 masterpiece written back in Barman, The Condition of the Working Class in England. There are so many elements to 
this book, and it is his finest book. And Marx always suggested, Marx read again The Condition of the Working Class when he was working on Das Kapital in the 1860s. And, he, and there's this lovely letter saying, what passion, what incisiveness he wrote then. You know, Then we wrote in black and white, not these terrible shades of grey now. And in the youth of Engels' writing, there's this extraordinary energy uh, of, uh, of, of anger. The sanitary horrors, the state of the Irish community, the, the, the spatial divides of the city. But this is not a journalistic account. Uh, this is not reportage. This is consolidating uh, his communist theory. It is a work of ideology. The role of Manchester is to confirm that thinking. Um, and what you see throughout it is this extraordinary focus on the bestiality of the working classes in Manchester, the dehumanisation of the working classes in Manchester, the animalism, the way the Irish share their uh, livings with pigs, um, the, 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 the living amongst excrement. And all of this is to show that dehumanisation, alienation from one's human essence is the product of capitalism. And it's at its most extreme in a city like Manchester. Well, one man particularly interested in the articles and pamphlets which began to emanate from Engels' time in Manchester was a young Prussian philosopher holed up in an apartment on the left bank in Paris. And here we see the incredibly suave and attractive uh, Karl Marx. But you also get a sense, I think, here of the, of, of the Moorishness of him. His nickname was always the Moor. Spelt M O R or M O H R, or uh, Jenny Marx's wife called him my wild black boar, my black knave. Um, and there is that sort of hirsute oriental otherness uh, about uh, Marx uh, from the beginning. Engels had met Marx once beforehand, and they had a very tricky, uh, very difficult, chilly meeting, as he said. Uh, they were both sort of up and coming young Hegelians. They met in an editor's office. They were sort of both sizing each other out and they didn't, they didn't quite like each other. But then Engels begins to write some articles for Marx's paper and the sort of the mood softens and they meet up in, sorry, they meet up in Paris when Engels is on his way back from Manchester uh, to Barman uh, and then they have this huge wonderful 10-day drinkathon. Um, and at that point the, the, the friendship uh, is secured. Like Engels, Marx saw that class-based capitalism progressively alienated man from himself. And like Engels, Marx regarded the solution to this crisis of alienation lying in the propertyless hands of the very class created by capitalism, the proletariat. Both of them had come to the conclusion that the way out of the crisis of capitalism, the way out of dehumanization, lay in the hands of the proletariat. It was their historic function to return man to himself, human emancipation, by transcending the iniquity which underlay political economy, by abolishing private property. Communism, Marx wrote, is the positive abolition of private property and thus of human self-alienation and therefore the real reappropriation of the human essence by and for man. And what's so important about that is they meet as equals. Marx and Engels had reached intellectually the same point when they came together. But then in the Paris meeting, 
This dynamic changes. This is a terrible picture of Marx and Engels from made of I, but it's the only they're very as we'll see there, there's only one photograph of Marx and Engels together, which I'll which I'll come to later. But the point is for the next forty years, as Professor Minogue suggested, this is one of the great friendships in the history of Western political thought, if not the greatest. And Engels makes the crucial decision to step back. Engels recognizes Marx's greater genius and decides to to step back for him. His superior ability in providing the ideological groundings of what he said was our outlook meant that Engels would take the place, as he put it, of second fiddle. Marx was a genius, Engels wrote. We others were at best talented. Without him, the theory would not be by far what it is today. It therefore rightly bears his name. And Engels was happy to play second fiddle, as he put it, to so fine a first fiddle as Marx. How can anyone be envious of genius? It is something so very special that we, who have not got it, know it to be unattainable right from the start. But to be envious of anything like that, one must have to be frightfully small-minded. And the next four years, 1844-48, see Marx and Engels really having the time of their lives as they begin to work out their ideological grounding together. Crucially, uh, in their work, the German ideology, which they, they famously abandoned to the gnawing criticism of the mice, uh, and is then only published in 1932. But they clarify what they're uh, about. Uh, they're in Paris, they're in Brussels, uh, and then they go back to Manchester, to um, this, this famous table they sit at um, in Chetham's Library um, in Manchester, which is still there today. Um, and this, this, in terms of, I mean, there, there are some shrines to Marx and Engels uh, in Britain, but this is the key shrine, I would suggest, to Marx and Engels uh, in Britain. And there are these lovely stories of the Chinese consulate going to this table and uh, weeping uh, as, they, as they sort of imbue the spirit of Marx, which they're allowed to do now. They're allowed Marx and Engels again now. Um, out of these four years emerges... As you all know, their most celebrated uh, polemic here in, here in the Russian edition, uh, the Communist uh, Manifesto. By this time, they'd joined forces with the Communist League as they thought the best vehicle for implementing their ideas, uh, and they are given the task of writing uh, the Communist Manifesto. They began working on the manifesto together in London and then in Brussels. But it was Marx who delivered the final edition. And it is, in many sense, this gratifying absence of a committee consensus which makes the manifesto read so well today. From its epic opening lines, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism, to its challenging finale, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. It's a polemic written in one heroic breath. But we often forget that it was Engels who did so much of the legwork behind it. It was Engels who was in the committee rooms at Great Windmill Street, sort of grinding through the composite motions and grinding through uh, the detailed debate. The German socialist leader, Wilhelm Liebknecht, had it right. What was supplied by one, what by the other, an idle question, he wrote. It is of one mould, and Marx and Engels are one soul, as inseparable in the Communist Manifesto as they remain to their death in all their working and planning. 
But the terrible tragedy for Marx and Engels was that the manifesto was a great deal better than the actuality. Uh, the 1848-49 continental revolutions in Europe were the turning point, as AJP Taylor put it, when Europe failed to turn. It was this, this disaster which crumbled in many ways uh, in their hands. Engels himself, as the young revolutionary, uh, did not have a bad war. Um, he is very keen to see conflict, uh, partly so they can stand up tall um, as revolutionaries. And he returns to his hometown of Barman to build the barricades against the Prussian troops. Uh, and there are these sort of lovely letters from him back to Jenny Marx saying, oh, the, the whistle of bullets past you is not such a big thing. You know. um, and then there are two sort of lovely moments during the revolution. One is, I think, far too good to be true, which is this account of him building the barricades in his hometown, and then his father going to church over the same bridge, and then meeting the, sort of the young revolutionary and the pious manufacturer uh, together and having this rather frosty uh, conversation, one trying to build the revolution, the other crush it. But then there was his poor mother, because after the failure uh, of the Barman revolution, there's a arrest warrant issued uh, for Engels. And she reads it over her morning coffee. Now you have really gone too far, she wrote to her son. So often have I begged you to proceed no further, but you have paid more heed to other people, to strangers, and have taken no account of your mother's pleas. God alone knows what I have felt and suffered of late. And this, this obvious public humiliation and the Engels family home was now subject to police searches and looking through their letters and all the rest of it. It was too much for a mother's heart. I can think of nothing else but you and then I often see you as a little boy still playing near me. How happy I used to be then and what hopes did I not pin upon you. And there's this lovely situation where Engels' family always blames Marx for leading Engels astray. And Marx's family always blame Engels for leading uh, him astray. And the, the mothers equally horrified by the way their sons are going. But 48-49 fails. Uh, the revolution crumbles. Marx is banished from Paris to Brittany. Um, and we always say, oh, he seeks asylum in London. But you know, he could have lived in Brittany, but that was just too ghastly for uh, Marx. So he, so he comes to, uh, to, to London, and then he immediately writes to Engels, who is himself seeking asylum in Switzerland, uh, and says, you know, forget Switzerland. Come to London. We have work to do. You know, we must, we, we must rebuild the revolution. But it soon became apparent that, first of all, the forces of reaction, uh, the conservative response to 48-49 was far too strong and powerful. There was not going to be another resurgence of revolution in the short term. Secondly, none of them had any money amongst the immigrant community to live on. Uh, Engels' parents had finally turned off the tap after sort of years of uh, indulgence. Marx never earned any money from various publishing deals and newspaper articles and all the rest. So there came this terrible decision. How do we go forward? Um, and this is the, the moment of sacrifice for Engels. As having had these wonderful six years, having tried to build the revolution, having worked on the philosophy, he has to bend the knee return sort of shamefacedly to his family and take a job back in Manchester in order to fund Marx and the writing of Das Kapital. 
The two of us form a partnership together, Marx explained to Engels, in which I spend my time on the theoretical and party side of the business, while Engels' job was to provide the financial support by busying himself at commerce. So much against his will, Engels, the revolutionary communist in 1850, was transformed back into the frock-coated cotton lord. And the contradictions of his position were obviously apparent, as he explained in a letter to Marx. Huckstering is too beastly, he wrote. Most beastly of all is the fact of being not only a bourgeois, but actually a manufacturer, a bourgeois who actively takes sides against the proletariat. A few days in my old man's factory have sufficed to bring me face to face with this beastliness, which I'd rather overlooked. I never quite understood how he could rather uh, overlook that. But moreover, Engels returned to a city which was beginning to be transformed. The, the Manchester of the mid-Victorian years is moving away from this revolutionary citadel of the 1840s, the world of the Chartists and the lockouts and the strikes and the rallies, to the Manchester of the Free Trade Hall, of the mid-Victorian boom, of literary and philosophical societies, of baths and washhouses, parks, of prosperity. And this was a very different city to that which Engels had left behind. And what's so fascinating about Engels' years in Manchester is the way he has to come to terms with this new city and the double life he begins to build for 20 years during his time in Manchester. His first life was as the revolutionary communist, still writing to Marx, meeting with the Chartists, um, coordinating socialist tracts. And the second was as an unimpeachable member of the Manchester bourgeoisie, attending concerts by the Halle Orchestra, a regular at the Manchester Royal Exchange, a stalwart of the city's civil society, a member of the Schiller Anstalt, president of the Schiller Anstalt, the Brazenose Club, the Albert Club, the subscription library, and of course, the Cheshire Hounds. And this is a meet of the Cheshire Hounds uh, in the mid-1840s, uh, slightly before uh, Engels uh, joined uh, in 1857. Um, and he rode... Uh, uh, with the Cheshire Hounds from 1857 to uh, 1869. Uh, and he rode really with the cream of British nobility. The master of foxhounds is the Marquis of Grosvenor, the first Duke of Westminster, and you don't really get much posher uh, than that. The Earl of Crewe, the Earl of Chumley. Uh, the Cheshire Hunt uh, is, is renowned uh, for its uh, aristocratic uh, uh, composition. Occasionally, Engels tried to justify his revolution, his hobby on revolutionary grounds, uh, as he called it, the best school of all for warfare. Uh, because come the revolution, there would, there would be some of those who had to leave the cavalry charge. Uh, and having, having worked closely with the Cheshire Hounds, uh, he, felt, he felt qualified uh, to do that. He did also uh, defend its philosophical virtues. Uh, when he later writes on the difference between the animal world and the natural world and how man can manipulate the natural environment and the animal, animal world has to operate within the constraints of the natural environment, he draws on his time with the Cheshire Hounds and uh, explains how the fox can understand the natural environment so much better and that's why it's a sporting chance that it has to get away from uh, the hounds and the horses. But however he dressed it up, what clearly aroused Engels was the thrill of the chase. 
That sort of thing always keeps me in a state of devilish excitement for several days. It's the greatest physical pleasure I know. And he was never afraid to front the field. He was always among the leaders in clearing ditches, hedges and other obstacles, wrote Marx's son-in-law. But his domestic life was far less aristocratic. Its anchor was his longtime lover, Mary Burns, who we met in 1844, uh, the guide to the underworld of Manchester. She then dies in 1863, and after a suitable and dignified period of mourning, uh, Engels moves on uh, to her sister, uh, Lizzie Burns, uh, who he stays with uh, for the next uh, 20 uh, or so years. Mary and Lizzie are both illiterate uh, Irish uh, mill hands. Um, there's a sort of weird historical debate as to where Engels met them. Did they work at his parents' mill or were they actually uh, domestic uh, helps who he then, he then caught the eye of? Um, but he's devoted to Mary um, and Lizzie. The problem was how to retain his place within Manchester society as a member of the exchange, as a member of the Cheshire Hunt, as a member of the bourgeoisie, whilst having this earthy Irish proletarian domestic life. And the solution was to run a series of houses across Manchester in the 1850s and 1860s. He'd have an official base uh, for Engels, the mill owner, a member of the bourgeoisie, and then an unofficial base uh, to keep Mary uh, and Lizzie uh, in, uh, close by. So this is Thorncliffe Grove, which was his official base for a number of years. Uh, this is Dover Street, um, slightly run down. Um, that's Manchester University, but Manchester University has destroyed most of the sort of Engels uh, terrain. I think that's actually the chemistry department, which is about to encroach um, on the... But as you can see, a rather grand house in its time. Uh, and then this uh, is the love nest uh, for, for, for Mary and Lizzie um, on, on Hyde Road. And this is just a, a, a number. Uh, Richmond Grove as well, he lived in uh, Cecil Street as well. There are a series of properties as Engels moves around uh, Manchester, keeping his two worlds as separate as possible. And occasionally it's discovered, uh, and then he has to move again. But it was all necessary to keep Karl going. The profits from Ehrman and Engels were used for the writing of Das Kapital. Dear Mr. Engels, as Jenny Marks was apt to address him, was regularly allocating over half his annual income to the Marks family, totaling over a 20-year period in terms of our own money between 300 and 400,000 pounds. And they called him Mr. Chitty behind his back. But crucially, I think, Ehrman and Engels yielded more than just a living allowance. It also provided the essential data for Marx's analysis of capitalism. I've now reached a point in my work on economics where I need some practical advice from you, since I cannot find anything relevant in the theoretical writings Marx wrote to Engels in January 1858. It concerns the circulation of capital, its various forms in the various businesses, its effects on profits and prices. If you could give me some information on this, then it will be very welcome. And over the next five years, in the letters from Marx and Engels, you see this relentless demand for practical information which Engels has picked up from his world, from his time in the cotton industry, uh, from his time on the exchange, uh, to provide the information 
uh, for Das Kapital. Could you inform me of all the different types of workers employed, for example, at your mill and in what proportion to each other? Since practice is better than all theory, I would ask you to describe to me very precisely, with examples, how you run your business. And the inquiries went on and on. But it proved worth it for Engels. Because when, in 1867, Das Kapital finally comes out, after these you know, relentless demands in turn by Engels saying, you really must sit down now and write this. I think we, you know, this has been going on long enough. You know, the, the, the essay crisis is over. You've got to deliver. Um, and it comes out. And there's this, again, this lovely letter from Marx to Engels saying, I know how much you've sacrificed for this. I know how ghastly the last 17 years in Manchester and working in the cotton trade uh, and how debilitating that has proved for you. But here is uh, the final fruit. I think and an example of extraordinary callousness, which tells you most of what you need to know about Marx, is not even dedicated to Engels. Uh, it's dedicated to Wilhelm Wolff, uh, who in his uh, will leaves Marx £800 uh, quite recently. Uh, so the, the, sort of the most immediate example of influx of cash uh, gets, uh, gets the dedication. So in 1870, after 20 years in the Manchester cotton trade, the, the contradictions of the cotton lord communist finally come to an end as Engels is bought out of Ehrman and Engels. And much to the relief of himself and the Marx family, he moves down south with Lizzie Burns to rent a large house on the edge of Primrose Hill, not 10 minutes from Marx's house in Chalk Farm, North London. Engels came to see my father every day, Eleanor Marx remembered. They sometimes went for a walk together, but just as often they remained in my father's room, walking up and down, each on his side of the room, boring holes with his heels as he turned on it in his corner. Frequently they walked up and down, side by side, in silence. Or again, each would talk about what was then mainly occupying him, until they stood face to face and laughed aloud, admitting they had been weighing opposite plans for the last half hour. Um... His house is the one with the blue plaque, number 122, uh, which you can... We've got the blue, uh, the blue plaque there. Friedrich Engels, political philosopher, which I think is rather anodyne, uh, lived here. Oh, I, I don't know if I can go back. Um, when Marx and Engels did go for a walk, they had this very constitutional process of... Engels would leave Primrose Hill, he'd walk to Marx and Chalk Farm, they'd do quite a vigorous circuit of Hampstead Heath, uh, and then back down again uh, within about... Uh, two hours. And it's quite, I did part of the walk today. It's, it's a fairly arduous uh, stretch. But Engels' house at 122 Regents Park Road became known in the 1870s as the mecca of international socialism, where radicals and communists from across Europe gathered. He was known at the time as the Grand Lama of the Regents Park Road, the, the high priest of European communism and socialism. Outside his doors, needless to say, there was this sort of shifting array of French spies, Prussian spies, and the Metropolitan uh, Police. And there are these, in the Amsterdam archives, there's some lovely accounts of you know, them looking through the post. Uh, and then there's a, a good account by Engels uh, of this British bobby walking up and down in front of their shutters. And he says he thinks uh, we're making dynamite and we're just drinking whiskey uh, behind here. And after 20 years apart... The two Prussian philosophers, the old Londoners, as they became known, began to work together. 
They celebrated the triumphs of the Paris Commune. They lamented the rise of Bismarck. They urged on the working class in London's East End and helped to build the first international into a global force for communism. In intellectual terms, Engels at last had the chance to do some thinking. And this is the interesting thing about his time in Regent's Park Road in the 1870s and 1880s. As a rentier living on uh, the interest on his stocks, he becomes a man of letters, and he goes back in to Marxian philosophy. He writes The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. He thinks much more creatively about historical materialism. He begins to develop a Marxian notion uh, of military strategy uh, and military thinking. He begins, crucially also, to look back on his time in Manchester, where you had such a public culture uh, of science, and begin to connect some of Marx's thinking to the scientific controversies and scientific revolutions of the day. And this was the beginning of the road toward dialectical materialism, which Engels begins with his work on anti-During and the dialectics of nature, an originally intriguing critique of the natural and then social sciences, which would in the 20th century become the intellectual rationale in various mutated forms for the worst excesses of Marxism and Leninism. But Engels also began to think creatively about the implications and applications of what was becoming to be known as Marxism. And there is, of course, the wonderful quote from Marx about, you know, whatever it is, I'm not a Marxist, when he confronted some of the French uh, Marxists. And Engels always regarded Marxism as really made up of two things. First of all, historical materialism rather than idealism, going right back to the 1840s, a focus on material economic realities of the lived experiences of man rather than high-flown ideas about religion and philosophy. It was turning Hegel uh, on his head. It was getting the rational kernel out of all the idealistic nonsense. And out of that, you had the beginnings of dialectical materialism. And secondly, of course, the theory of surplus value, the, the equation at the heart of Das Kapital, which explained how the bourgeoisie enriched themselves uh, on the back of the proletariat. <coughs> but I think Engels' achievement was to take Marxism out of this emphatically economistic realm and transfer its ideas elsewhere. And while Karl Marx is getting more and more buried in primitive Asian communism and you know, early Russian uh, uh, agriculture um, in the British Museum. Um, and my, my old tutor, Gareth Stemmon-Jones, thinks that Marx kept working on volumes two and three of Dust Capital because he was scared of his wife, Jenny Marx, and he could never reveal to her that actually he didn't think it was all working out. And so he just had to keep plugging away uh, on it. Whereas he is getting ground down on this. Engels, as I've suggested, is thinking far more creatively about the bourgeois hypocrisy of marriage, about uh, child rearing in Marxist societies. Uh, about the economic foundations of military hegemony and crucially about colonialism. Engels, before Marx, is providing the intellectual rationale mainly through his writings on Ireland about anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, 
the connection between metropole and colony, all of which Engels knew about from his time uh, in Manchester. And then he also, after Marx's death in 1883, edits volumes two and three of Das Kapital. Now, I'm slightly out of kilter with all my slides now, but um, this is Engels um, in the 1890s of the Grand Lama of the Regent's Park Road. Uh, this is the one photo we have of Marx and Engels together uh, with uh, Marx's daughters, Jenny, Laura, uh, and Eleanor, and they're on uh, holiday. Um, and Marx and Engels were, were, were very good on holidays. Uh, Ramsgate, Margate, Eastbourne, uh, Brighton, um, uh, sort of, you know, Kent coastal resorts close to London uh, were uh, a favourite. But it was, of course, in the 20th century where, in terms of thinking about Marx and Engels, some of the problems begin. Starting in the Soviet Union, starting in Russia, a very specific interpretation of Marxism which, beginning with Lenin's one-time mentor, Plekhanov, drew a great deal on Engels' more scientific writings and the theory of dialectical materialism, began to dominate interpretations and then, in turn, justify all the excesses of Lenin, Stalin, and in various mutations around the world. Increasingly deviating from Engels' own writings, they nonetheless declared their devotion to his ideology. And there's absolutely no doubt when you look at Engels' writings in the 1890s that he is a far more pluralistic, a far more democratic, a far more open thinker, hostile to vanguardist takeovers um, than he had been uh, in his middle uh, or early uh, years. And Engels' mature thinking, I think, provides very little uh, justification for what was uh, to follow. But the question now, I think, is whether as the state communist experiment remains limited to a few isolated nations, we can take a look at Marx and Engels afresh. For while I find it hard to believe that Engels would have regarded the state socialist experiments of the 20th century as his vision of communism made flesh, he certainly could not have accepted the current situation. If we can strip away the accretions of 20th century Marxism-Leninism, the dictatorial deviation, and return to the authentic Engels of 19th century Europe, a very different and strikingly contemporary voice re-emerges. From his eerie in the Manchester cotton industry, Engels understood, as few other socialists did, the true face of rampant capitalism. And as our post-1989 liberal utopia of free trade and democracy faces the strain of religious orthodoxy and free market fundamentalism, his critique resonates down the ages. The cosy collusion of government and capital, the corporate hunger for cheap labour and low skills, the restructuring of family life around the proclivities of the market, and even the design of our cities as dictated by the demands of capital. All of these were foreseen and dissected by Engels over a century ago. Engels' relentless denunciation of the devastating processes of capitalism is particularly apposite, I think, when it comes to the unregulated global market, most notably in the emerging economies of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. For here, all the horrors of breakneck industrialization, capitalism transforming social relations, destroying old customs and habits, turning villages into cities and workshops into factories, display the same savagely, savagery, previously on show in 19th century Europe. 
with China now claiming the mantle of workshop of the world, the pollution, ill health, political resistance and social unrest prevalent in the special economic zones of Guangdong province and Shanghai appear eerily reminiscent of Engels' accounts of Manchester and Glasgow. Compare and contrast Engels' description of conditions in an 1840s cotton mill. In the cotton and flax spinning mills, there are many rooms in which the air is filled with fluff and dust. The operative, of course, had no choice in the matter. The usual consequence of inhaling factory dust are the spitting of blood, heavy noisy breathing, pains in the chest, coughing and sleeplessness. The most common injury is the loss of a joint of the finger. In Manchester, one sees not only numerous cripples, but also plenty of workers who have lost the whole or part of an arm, leg or foot. Compare that with the testimony of a Chinese migrant worker in Shenzhen in 2000. There is no fixed work schedule. A 12-hour workday is minimum. With rush orders, we have to work continuously for 30 hours or more. It's very exhausting because we have to stand all the time to straighten the denim by clothing. There is no place to sit on the shop floor. Machines do not stop during our lunch breaks. The shop floor is filled with thick dust. Our bodies become black working day and night indoors. When I get off from work and spit, it's all black. From his teenage years, as a manufacturer's heir, amidst the riches and poverty, the misery and degradation of the barman bleacheries, Engels was convinced there was a more dignified place for humanity in the modern age. Engels' Marxism was an alternative ideal of managing markets and the affairs of men, which is sorely missing today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Tristram, for that marvellous and spirited performance, which I see in a rather as as an exponent of a Machiavellian form of thought. Uh, we must get rid of the accretions and return to the origins, which Machiavelli called renovatio. So I think you're an exponent of Machiavellian renovatio. And what I love particularly is, of course, the notion of fox hunting as military training for revolution. Not many people saw that. Now, um, uh, we, we have some time for questions and comments. We must finish by 8 o'clock, and at 8 o'clock, uh, Dr. Hunt will uh, be able to sign uh, copies of his book, if there are people who would like to have signed copies of his books. Very distinguished, and no doubt, um, one of these days, they will be collector's items. Um, so you will have the opportunity to do that. Um, but now, let me throw the floor open, as it were, and um, see if there are comments or questions. Yes. We have... Uh, the modern world is marvellous in... Uh, High-tech. I'm very interested in your parallel between Guangdong province and you know, Brooks economies now with Manchester under Engels. And um, I just wonder if you comment generally on the fact that the Chinese, in some sense, seem to be rejecting communism and deliberately going for the system that Engels was so critical of. 
Well, I, th I think this is what's so interesting is that, that then so much of this exploitation is done in the name of the, the Communist Party of, of China. Um, and in terms of the, you know, the other elements uh, of the communist vision, which is a far broader notion than just material uh, justice and you know, material fulfillment, there's no part of that uh, package there. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting about the, the Chinese situation is, you know, essentially, do they follow the British model, which was not in the 1840s, you know, to go for full throttle democracy? It was more to introduce the rule of law, and it was more to, you know, tamp around the edges, and it, and it takes another generation for British society to then head towards uh, democracy. Um, but I think the, the managing the contradictions and managing the tensions um, in China, which will be particularly you know, interesting during uh, the downturn, um, and when you begin to get the people going from uh, the urban centres back to, uh, to the villages, I think Engels would have found it a sort of uh, you know, a, a very exciting proposition. Um, even though the template is under the Communist Party, um, I mean the, you know the old Deng Xiaoping idea. You know it doesn't it doesn't matter if a, a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. Um, I don't think that quite stands up anymore. I don't think there's 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 much sort of communist in terms of the the almost the utopian early ideals, the, to return to the, to the original stuff of Marx and Engels in, in, in what goes on with the Communist Party in China. Very good. Um, yes. Thank you. Um, I've always understood uh, both Marx and, and Engels as people who propagated the destruction of the capitalist system as we know it, for various reasons, as that you, some of them you pointed out. But there's something intriguing about your lecture towards the end where you say, in fact, a proper understanding of Engels is he was propagating for a management of the market. Now, I just wonder whether, I mean, my understanding has been fundamentally wrong or perhaps it was a misinterpretation of Engels that we, we thought that he was asking for a destruction of the system because it debases uh, the person from humanity. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and that last sentence is, is poorly phrased. What I, um, because, yeah, yeah, I mean, one, one, go, one goes beyond uh, the capitalist system and it, and it, it is destroyed, it, it withers away along with the state. The, the point I wanted to suggest was that it, what Marx and Engels offered were alternative paradigms uh, to the market model of today, either transcending it um, or you know, destroying it, or even, in terms of a sort of debate, uh, a much more radical reorientation of it. Uh, but in terms of Engels's specific thinking, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's, it's, it's a destruction of it and a, and a, and a transcending of it, really. Might I just ask, um, to the question, what could replace capitalism? One answer is, well, it'll be like this, socially just and so on, but there you're sliding into utopianism. Alternatively, you can say, well, 
I don't know what's going to replace it because that's the future and I'm not an astrologer or a prophet. All I know is that the one thing is to destroy capitalism. So you have a kind of fork in which either you are utopian or else you're a sort of blind destroyer of a system. Is there a way out of that that our friend Engels would have seen? I mean, Marx would embrace the second option, I think. But um... Yes, I mean, as you know, things get pretty hazy once you start dealing with the details of, of the post-capitalist solution and the post-capitalist uh, settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, and, and maybe it's because we now live in this this secular age, I think as his, historians more and more you know, in, in, interpret communism and understand communism as, you know, unsurprisingly, as, as a religious act and as, a, a, as an act of faith. And if there's a brilliant little book written by the late Raphael Samuel on his, his childhood in the Communist Party of Great Britain in the St Pancras Ward um, and this description of a church militant um, and the sacred texts um, and all the, the sort of the sociology uh, of communism, um, which gives you that total understanding that it was you needed an act of faith. And if you don't have that act of faith, then you can't make that leap, uh, for, which I personally uh, find difficult uh, to get to. It's a big jump. It's a big jump. Um, can I pick you and then this lady here? Um, possibly um, my... The fact that you can write a complimentary book about Engels suggests that he doesn't actually have the kind of critical um, relevance that he might do nowadays. In fact, in the current recession, people are um, there's been a, a great lack of resistance from the working class to, to sackings and things like that. Do you how, how do you kind of um, you know kind of kind of your your, your idea that, that Engels is a is a, is a kind of more um, relevant character today? than previously doesn't kind of chime in with my experience. So let's see what, what you think of that. Yeah, no, I, th- I think Engels would be horrified that someone called Tristram Hunt is writing a biography of Friedrich Engels in, uh, in this, this year. I mean, I, I would suggest that in terms, of, in terms of sort of, in terms of Britain, in terms of the, 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 the capitalist West as a, as a, as a, as a political theorist, um, Engels' uh, contribution in terms of sort of you know, organisation, activism, political projects is relatively limited, um, and you know he's historically very interesting. I mean, I, I would just sort of stick to what I what I said at the end of the lecture that actually it's in those countries which are undergoing, I would suggest, the kind of uh, experiences of urbanisation, industrialisation, which Engels was such a I think prescient chronicler of that he, he's most sort of interesting and useful. Does that then make him, as it were, a, a, a politically dangerous uh, figure or politically um, uh, sort of prescient figure? I, th- I think it adds, in terms of the rhetoric uh, and in terms of the denunciation of the levels of exploitation, I think it could potentially be. Uh, you know, add as to, to part of a uh, debate about you know what's going on. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I don't know the, 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 whether there's a Chinese edition of the condition of the working class in England and at what stage it is. I don't, I'm waiting for them to buy my book. Um, but um, I think in, 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 in those areas, it has more, he has more currency. I'd be astonished if there is not a Chinese translation. To what extent do you think that the portrayal of communism today is actually a result of Engels' creation of a dialectic uh, of Marxism, kind of offering rather than predicting um, communism, and creation of, of essentially a political philosophy and call for action rather than just an economic prediction? Um, Yes, I mean, I think, I mean, this is, this is the sort of difficulty one has, as it were, with, with Marx and Engels. Marx's stock has risen fantastically, really since, since 1998 and the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto. Marx has been celebrated as, as the great political seer of capitalism. You know, he was the one who understood globalization. He was the one who understood capitalism, you know, the sort of vogue for reading Das Kapital in Wall Street and Canary Wharf and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and he's almost non-political. He's just this, this rather good, uh, you know, theorist of capitalism. And then poor old Engels is left sort of holding the bags of Stalin and Honecker and Brezhnev and, uh, and all the rest because of uh, the, the, the nature of dialectical materialism, which they were very keen to connect to anti-During and dialectics of nature and all the rest of it. So I think, I think you're right. Um, I think it's a very good point that the, the, the sort of... The, the, the political accretions which became part of dialectical materialism have then overshadowed and undermined some of the economic uh, critiques um, and the particularly, yeah you're absolutely right particularly the work of Engels, I think that's, I think that's true Very good yeah. From the perspective of someone whose family used to work in those dreadful cotton mills, aren't you just being a bit too nice to Frederick Engels? Wasn't he a dreadful hypocrite in terms of taking the money and then writing these stories which perhaps a philosophy would never work shouldn't we find better heroes? Um I, yeah, one man's hypocrite is another man's contradiction. I think is the. Uh, um, I, you're right in in the sense, and and I think uh, I think part of the thing is you know to to be very clear that the money which came from Ehrman and Engels and the exploitation of the workers is what funded the writing of Das Kapital and making that totally clear you know connection between the sweat of the workers in the Bencliff Mill and the Victoria Mill in Salford to the pages of Das Kapital. I think it's historic, you know, we need to make that clear. Engels himself, and, he, and this was put to him numerous times about the, you know, hypocrisy and all the rest of it. Um, and the official defense is that he had to do it to, to, to support Marx, but also the, these were, you know, the, these kind of quibbles were neither here nor there because, you know, there was, there was a much grander, you know, contradiction coming. And, the, the, I mean, and, and this was always his defense of, of living off the stock market when he, when he was retired, that you can, you know, easily be a stock market man and a socialist. Um, and, you know, he would, he would accuse you of sort of, you know, petty bourgeois confused thinking, uh, which, you know, overshadowed the, the, the broader truth. It was clearly a massive Achilles heel for him, and he was very touchy about it. Uh, but he, he would never... Ap apologise. Uh, he would never explain it away. Just petty bourgeois moralism. That's what makes him a very attractive figure, exactly. actually. <laughs> um, when I look at Engels and Marx, uh, the thing that um, it strikes me is they recognise this 
clash between the classes in a capitalist society. They basically uh, told the citizens, if you will, they said, look, there is a certain group of elites that hold the power, and they abuse this power uh, to basically you know, uh, get richer. And um, if you look at the Western societies now, even with the crisis that we are in, I think if Engels and Marx were here today, they would be pretty, uh, they would be feeling good about the society now. Because if you look at in you know 18th, 19th century, the, there was, when you look at the tax collected per GMP, it was very low compared to what's today. Today, the Western societies collect 40-50% tax and redistribute it to the society. Everyone in this country and most European countries have free access to education and health. That's fantastic. If you're out of job, you get, you know, you get benefits. So there is a lot of things that today in Western economies that Engels and Marx were debating are actually, most of them are solved. Another thing is there is rule of law today where the citizens actually can use a lot of means of rule of law to claim their benefits. There is, of course, always, you know, back and forth, you get more, you get less, but I think Engels and Marx would be very happy today seeing Western societies, even in the recession today. So I don't think Marx and Engels have a lot to offer to the today's problems, but if you look at most of the emerging countries where elite has still hold a lot of power and rule of law can, is abusable through the use of you know, your relationship with America, your relationship um, with the army, you controlling the power. I think Mark, uh, Marx and Engels have a lot to offer to political movements to, you know, for the clash of uh, classes. Um, I, I, just I, one more uh, point. Sorry, I'm taking too long. But You're I taking a bit long, yes. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I mean, I, I think Marx and Engels would, would, would probably disagree with your your analysis of, of sort of modern welfare, Western society, and, and, and I think they'd be, they'd be far more happy about what's going on in the developing world and, and, and the political possibilities there than the sort of um, uh, the consensus here. Towards the end of his time in, in Manchester, when in, 1860, in 1867, the urban working class get the vote, uh, a large part of them in Manchester and, and other major cities. And in 1868, in Manchester, they all vote Tory. Um, and Engels is absolutely horrified uh, that once they were given this opportunity, uh, rather than accelerating the contradiction and having the clash of classes, uh, they vote Tory mainly because the Tories are anti-Irish. Um, and there's this letter saying, you know, we've got a... Uh, we've got this, you know, massive bourgeois in, in England, and now we've got a bourgeois aristocr aristocracy and a bourgeois proletariat. So this is actually what, what, what sort of undermines the, you know, as you know the welfareism, the, the, the collusion between uh, state and capital is, is what undermines the opportunity uh, of revolution. Certainly, I think, you know, given the men they were, they would rather have lived here um, and enjoyed it. Um, but I think... As, as you suggest, where, where, where the contradictions are starker, uh, where the tensions are greater, the inequalities, you know, more obvious, that's the sort of political terrain for them. There's another um, much ignored Marxist these days, Trotsky, once said, worse is better. Please. 
The lady over there. Um, looking at Engels' um, materialism, I'm not sure if he sufficiently accounts for worker-friendly legislation and currently um, the modern legal state. Sorry, in, in terms of his material, he doesn't... Um, I'm not sure if he accounts for worker-friendly legislation. Right. I mean, he, he was... I mean, again, you know, the, the growth of worker-friendly legislation, um, sort of welfareism, uh, was, was a step in the wrong direction. What he really liked was harsh laws um, which um, antagonised and consolidated the working class. So the reason why the socialists come communists in Germany do very well is because they're outlawed. Uh, the, the more aggressive legislation you have against the working classes, uh, the more excited he is. So sort of worker-friendly legislation, which in the 19th century, the Shaftesbury reforms and all that, is a sort of Tory, evangelical, blind alley. Um, and, of, and the great tragedy is, from Engels' perspective, that the workers take it up. Very good. We're, uh, we've, we're, we've got time for perhaps two or three other questions, but there's a gentleman there. I was just going to say, um, do you think they were being realistic with what they were thinking, or do you think that they were maybe revolutionaries for revolutionary's sake towards the end? No, I mean, I think they were realistic. I mean, if you think of what's, you know, what was going on in 1840s Manchester, you know, troops on the street, mass strikes, mass rallies, a, a, a really big moment of revolution. And then 1848, 49, you know, people killed on the streets, uh, again, monarchies falling. You know, it's, a, it's another moment of excitement. And then Engels becomes, in a sense, more realistic towards the end of his life because he's actually saying that in terms of Germany, for example, he thinks they're just going to win through the ballot box. He thinks more and more workers are going to vote uh, communist socialist uh, and they can win through those models. That's not to say that the philosophy as a whole did not contain those utopian elements because this leap from, which is the final moment, from the leap from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. I mean, what could be more sort of biblical and wonderful and utopian than that? And this is, this is the great irony. It begins uh, with this um, you know, opposition to idealism and this focus on materialism. But once you get to the, to the end point, it, it's a sort of, a lot of the time, it's a, it's a rather uh, religious conception. So in that sense, yeah, but in terms of the raw pragmatic politics, you know, when it comes to the Paris Commune and the German SPD, um, they can be pretty pragmatic. Very good. I just, have, over there. I just have a slight um, nagging doubt about this, um, the bit where you talk about Engels being stretching um, Marxism in a, a kind of exciting way and there's wonderful pamphlets he wrote and wonderful books he wrote I remember the part played by Labour in the transition from you know the, the, from ape to a man and it was you know fabulous things that he's stretching that way but there's something nagging about it in a way because I know uh, Marx was mumbling away and complaining I'm still stuck in this economic I think shit was the word that he used at that time and he's still stuck in that world yeah but then we go to the fact that Engels is more crudely used and so I'm just trying to reconcile it. It's almost like I'm thinking in my head about Darwinism and social Darwinism, that maybe that stretch too far in Engels is actually a, a seed too great in terms of moving it to a cruder version. I just wonder whether that's uh, a concern actually, for you. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think, I think the, the, 
Engels' conjunction of, of Marxism with the scientific revolution of the 19th century, um, both Marx and Engels begin from Hegel. Their sort of philosophical journey you know, stretches back to the early 1800s. The generation who, who read him begin with Darwin. So they already have this, this organicist notion, um, this, this totalizing notion uh, in, the, in their mind, um, and begin then, I think, uh, a different, um, uh, more, more closed um, intellectual journey, which, which takes them towards dialectical materialism. And I think, you know, what was, I think you're probably right, what was, was Engels in a sense, you know, often too sloppy in a sense about some of the scientific thinking. And some of his sort of, you know, thinking on maths and natural science is pretty ropey uh, at, at points. But then again, I do think uh, his other stuff is very interesting. And I, I just think we don't know enough about it. I mean, his writings on Ireland and, and colonialism, um, you know, which have been republished occasionally, are, are really rich and interesting. His, his, you know, if you look at all the sort of modern sociology of, of the city of you know spatial discourse and fair and all the rest of it it seems to be pure angles um, the, the the stuff on um, socialist feminism much of it drawn from angles so I think there's there's a as it were I think you it's a very interesting point about the scientific and scientific stuff but there is also this sort of other canon out there um, which if we're no longer all sold on the theory of surplus value um, actually raises still, you know, today, interesting questions. Um, you, would you like to ask a question? If so, you will be the last questioner we'll have time for. Thank you. Um, talking about Engels and dialectical materialism again, he seemed to be, it seems to me to be a series of abstract formulations, things like turning quantity into quality, and thesis, antithesis, synthesis, if that's part of it, and that kind of thing, which can be applied to all kinds of systems, economic and scientific, and of course be misapplied. But um, I'd just like you, if you can give an example, because you seem to indicate how it was somehow misused in the Soviet era. I don't quite, I just wonder if you had any particular oh. examples of that. Because it becomes the, 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 the because it becomes the founding um, rationale for, for Stalinism, Stalin's you know pamphlet, uh, dialectical um, materialism, means that you you basically can't remove any element from this this scientific process, um, and those who are, as it were, the, the sort of the scientists, the priests of the process, um, who are the leadership of the Communist Party, uh, understand how it works. So if you're going to move from quantitative to qualitative change at a certain stress point, uh, it's the leadership of the Communist Party who decide when that stress point is. Um, it's the idea, I think, that this, for Engels, and, and I agree, it's, it's, a lot of it is you know, fairly flaky, but for Engels, it was, it was a way of you know, taking the scientific revolution, matching it with Hegel's thinking, uh, and beginning to, to, to generate ideas about thinking about economic contradictions and how, and how you move to the next stage, social contradictions, how you move to the next stage. But it was an open, scientific, you know, from his perspective, form of inquiry. With Stalinism, it becomes a totally closed, non-debatable form. So 
you know, classically in terms of agriculture and agricultural theory. If you have a, um, a dialectical materialist process to agricultural production um, and gene uh, geneticism, gene therapy is wrong uh, and it doesn't fit with what the Communist Party decides is dialectical materialism, then you abandon it. So it, it closes down thinking uh, rather than opens it up, uh, which is not what uh, Engels was about. As indeed it did in the case of Lysenko, which, where the dialectic did not save agriculture from many a thing. Well, with that interesting reflection on the dialectic, it remains only for me to express our gratitude to Dr. Hunt for what has been a very lucid, spirited performance and which has restored Friedrich Engels to the pantheon, to one of the many pantheons.